Thank you. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, some of you do know who I am, and some of you have no idea who I am, and that's totally fine. Um, let me just start by giving you a little bit of context. Um, <clears throat> uh, the shortest way I can sum it up is uh, that I spent more than half of my adult life in this church. So I came as a young 20-something in need of a tremendous amount of healing and uh, got that healing in the life of this church. Um, and then I served as a leader and then as a pastor for about five or six years in the life of this church. Um, and then about eight years or so ago, some of us left Central Vineyard to go plant a new community on the west side of Columbus, Ohio. That community was called The Abbey. Uh, I pastored that with Hannah Esterbrook who was with us uh, sharing beautifully a few weeks ago. And so um, we began that community in 2017. It was a lovely community of people. We saw people come to know Jesus and inherit their inheritance as a son or a daughter of Jesus. We had a lot of folks that were working through deconstruction, and they came into love with Jesus. We had other people who went further into deconstruction, and we were all okay with all of that. And we uh, made a very hard decision uh, this past spring to close that community, and many of us have landed back here. And so um, I'm super grateful uh, for this community, for this church. Um, we raised our little kids here in this church. We had all of our babies in this church. Uh, our marriage was probably rescued because of this church and while uh, this church is really different from, from when we left, it still has all of the core elements that we fell in love with when this church began under a tree in Whetstone Park many, many years ago, 20, 20 years ago. So I'm just super grateful to be here. Um, I also want to say that grief is a really strange thing, which means, you know, this is like the second time I've taught since closing a church. And so if I, if I sort of get a little tender and leak out sideways, that's about me, not about you. And uh, we are super grateful to be here. So um, maybe we could just pray and center a bit. Holy Spirit, come. We pray, God, that you would be with us that you would settle our hearts, that you would open us up to your scriptures, and that you would be planting seeds of joy this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to tell you a story about a high-ranking official from Ethiopia. But first, I want to ask a couple questions. What does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? I don't know about you, but this is like one of the questions that I've been sitting with, particularly because of so much happening in the world. I mean, how many of you know that there's a lot going on right now? Do you guys feel that? Uh, there's so much happening, and I just find myself wondering as I read the news or as I talk with people about the things that are happening in their life, I find myself wondering, what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come into these particular situations, whether it's war or famine or earthquakes or mental health crisis? What does it look like for the kingdom of God to come? What is the kingdom of God, and what does it look like when it does come? The kingdom of God, this is the thing that we've been talking about as we've been reading through and, and we've been hearing teachings through uh, the gospel of Matthew. It's the thing that Jesus talks about the most. And the kingdom of God is rooted in this ancient poem that we read from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah um, uh, is, a, is a book from the Old Testament and Isaiah is a prophet and he proclaims that in spite of all appearances of, of things that are not going well for God's people, and in spite of everything in their world feeling like it's beginning to fall apart, the prophet of Isaiah tells a story of someone who runs into the city shouting, Good news! Good news! God is still the king. And there will be a day when God's kingdom begins to become more visible. 
And then what happens when Jesus begins his ministry, he begins the ministry of, of his life and his death, he begins it by saying the kingdom that Isaiah talked about is at hand. It's beginning to happen. It's beginning to unfold. And in Jesus' most famous prayer, the prayer he shares with his disciples when they say, would you please teach us how to pray? The prayer that he says is pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the question that we're always meant to ask is where is the kingdom of God coming? And when it comes, what does it look like? Where do I see the kingdom of God at work in my marriage or in my family or in my economics or in my work, or in the life of my neighbors, what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? And, and do I see anything happening inside of my own life that looks like a tiny seed of the kingdom that, that may be planted right now? And if I, if I go forward into my life and I look back on this season, I will see that God, in fact, has planted a seed of his kingdom that is beginning to grow. Where is that seed happening in your life right now? Well, the scriptures are full of people living their lives, either anticipating the coming kingdom and trying to bend their life in anticipation of what that might look like when God is sort of stewarding and reigning over everything, or uh, on dealing with some reality of the kingdom unfolding. So the kingdom spills out into our lives, and now we have to try to figure out how to actually deal with it or somewhere in between. Most of us are like trying to figure out how do I bend my life towards the expectation of God to do something and how do I orient myself to the fact that God is doing something right now. There is an already and a not yet. This is a familiar phrase in the life of this community. Is that true, Carl? Yeah, you've been saying stuff about that for like a decade, right? I know you have been, okay. So we learn the kingdom by paying attention. That's how we learn what it looks like. And in a season where our entire world feels like a crisis with multiple wars and earthquakes and famine and, and crumbling financial systems and mental health crises, this, I, I, I want to do something. There's this simple fact, by the way, that we, we're also approaching an election year. I don't know what that does to you, but that feels like a crisis to me. <laughs> I, I want to center us on a kingdom-shaped story this morning. Sometimes it's helpful to be reminded of a simple story that embodies something much bigger when we can't wrap our, our mind around all of the things. So I don't know about you, but I'm living in a world right now where I'm just having trouble keeping up with how much is falling apart. And so I don't know that I get overwhelmed by it, Every once in a while I do, but what's helpful for me is to find a story to center my life and to guide my life on, and, and I want to tell that kind of story for you this morning. There are sometimes a simple story can help us make sense of the things that we can't make sense of, and I want you to hang on to that piece because we're going to come back to it. And this brings us to the story about a high-ranking official from Ethiopia. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Um, I think it's also going to be on the screen. Um, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read and skip around a little bit here. It says that Saul was in hearty disagreement with, with putting him uh, to death. We, we read about Stephen before that. And on that great day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they, meaning the disciples, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, even the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he put them into prisons. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, the good news, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. 
And so there was much rejoicing in the city. Okay, so we're going to skip down to verse 25. Um, And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And so he got up, Philip got up, and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, They came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, And the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. Okay, I know there's a lot there. We're not going to unpack all of that. But this um, is happening in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is basically the second part of Luke's gospel. And the way that Luke begins the book of Acts is in Acts 1.8. He he begins with words in Jesus' mouth. And he says, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. This is how the book of Acts kind of begins. So Luke uses Jesus' words like an outline, and he shows that this is exactly how things begin to unfold. The believers, they wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, as Jesus instructed them, and then the Spirit comes with the presence of God. And when the presence of God comes to the disciples when they're in Jerusalem, one of the things that happens is the people who experience this outpouring of the presence of God, they begin to know how to speak in other languages. And with all of the different languages being spoken, they begin to proclaim the good news in Jerusalem. And so people are hearing about the kingdom of God from the very beginning in their own language. And then all of the people who were outside of Jerusalem, people from very distant places away, they're hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And then Peter goes around Jerusalem and he begins preaching about the good news. He begins talking about Jesus and the, the, the proclamation that Peter is making is that Jesus is the king, the kingdom is coming, and everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the kingdom is coming. But God has flipped the script 
and that the kingdom that he was building is one that could not be built with human hands or, or ingenuity or even political power. This is a kind of kingdom that is unfolding with self-sacrificial love as God gave himself up on the cross. So, so it's, it's, it's sort of a backwards kind of kingdom, and he's completely transforming who it was that is getting invited into the kingdom. And so this message, this idea of message that everyone gets to come into this kingdom, it begins to disrupt everybody in Jerusalem because the whole story is being turned on its head. And so what begins to happen is that people begin to become persecuted, which sends the message out from Jerusalem into Judea, just like Jesus promised. And then we read a story about Philip who goes to Samaria, and he, and he begins to proclaim the gospel message in Samaria. So, friends, when Jesus says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the remotest parts of the earth, Luke is basically saying it is unfolding exactly the way that Jesus said it would. It's beginning to spread and emanate out from Jerusalem. And so in the context of this story that is unfolding, Ethiopia, how many of you could point Ethiopia out on a map? Be honest. Okay, maybe a third of us, okay? Ethiopia is, is basically the remotest part of the earth. That's what this is representing in this story. And this morning, I want to explore this story that Luke tells about the Ethiopian eunuch through three perspectives. The eunuch, the scriptures, and the temple. Okay? So first, the eunuch. Are you guys with me? Okay. The eunuch. So the, the scene in this story unfolds with the eunuch at the center of the story. So already the person who in everyone's first century mind would have been included in the remotest part of the land is now at the center of the story. So the Holy Spirit whispers in Philip's ear that he should head down the road heading out of Jerusalem towards Gaza, which you've probably been hearing in the news recently, haven't you? The road that Philip begins going down is a desert road headed toward a deserted city. And so reading this in the first century context would lead us to believe that Philip is being led to a dead end because this road leads to a desert. There's nothing out there. And along the desert road to Gaza, he comes upon a traveling chariot, and in this chariot was seated the treasurer of the kingdom of Ethiopia. Now, the one sitting in the chariot was neither unambiguously male or female. Luke makes sure that we understand that that's what's happening here. So in the first century culture, there could be several different ways that one could, could be outside the very clear markers of male and female. Jesus actually describes three different kinds of eunuchs in Matthew chapter 19. Now friends, can I pause for a second? I'm not speaking to our present realities of gender identity. Okay, so don't send me any emails. I'm just describing for you the ancient world and, the, and what was happening and unfolding in the first century. I simply am saying something about the reality of the ancient world. And while I do think that there are some things that we could pull on to help us in our present context related to gender identity and all that kind of stuff, I'm not pulling that thread at all this morning, okay? But I do want to say that the person riding in the chariot is neither a male nor a female. There's some, there's some ambigu ambiguous nature about what does it mean to be a, a eunuch. Um, in the ancient Near East, a eunuch was usually a castrated male. You did not have castration on your bingo card this morning, did you? Okay. <clears throat> a castrated male servant or maybe somebody who was unable to reproduce because of a birth defect or something that happened along the way or some sort of injury that may have prevented this male from reproducing. But that was sort of like no longer an option. 
And so when Jesus talks about eunuchs, he said there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. So this is a particular group of people known in this culture, placed in this culture with a very specific role to play. This person in the chariot was a eunuch. And a eunuch would often be employed at a high level within a kingdom because if you're going to have a man close to the top of the ranks of power to perform a task like keeping the books and dispersing the money, it's better to have someone in that high position of power who didn't actually have any other kind of power. Does this make sense? That's what's going on in the cultural context. A eunuch couldn't seduce anyone or be seduced by anyone. And so if you are handling the money of the kingdom, it's a good idea to not have cultural power. And so this Ethiopian eunuch either made themselves that way in order to get a job. That's a very tough interview process. Or... They were made that way as an act of subjugation, as an act of I will rule over you to say you are welcome to be a part of our fancy kingdom, but we're going to strip you of all the other power that you could possibly have. This is the context of what's happening. So this eunuch, in his own context, had the ear of the queen. High position of power. He likely lived a life of luxury given the fact that he is carrying a scroll and he knows how to read and he has a chauffeur driving his chariot. High degree of power, high degree of luxury. He has just traveled 1,500 miles from his home, probably an official kingdom, uh, on official kingdom business of some kind. And while he is in Jerusalem, he is eager to take part in the celebration of one of the feasts. And he comes into Jerusalem. It says that he's a believer. He comes into the holy city and all of the status that he enjoys in his own country means nothing. He's an outsider because he's from a far off country. He would have stuck out in the city simply because of the color of his skin. He is not Jewish by birth. And so the worship service that he was coming to in Jerusalem would have only let him have limited access. So there were different ways that people could engage in the life of the temple, in the life of worship, in the life of these giant festivals that were happening in Jerusalem. And he would only have been allowed in the outer part of that festival. Hence the work that we did with the kids this morning, trying to help them understand what it was like to not be invited in. Both because he was a Gentile um, outside of God's chosen people, and because he was a eunuch. You see, the Jewish law that was still being upheld by the priests would not have allowed this eunuch to have full entry into the place of of worship. He was not allowed to come into the party. The law of Israel excluded eunuchs from religious privilege enjoyed by other members of the community. Does that make sense? For multiple reasons, he would have been on the outside. Deuteronomy 23.1 says that no one who has had their testicles removed, either on purpose or because of an accident. I don't know how that happens by accident, but. Is allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. And so this eunuch would have traveled to Jerusalem to worship the Creator God and would have gotten only as far as the section of the temple reserved for the Gentiles and the sick and the lepers and the beggars and the outcasts. Is the story starting to make sense to you? It's likely that the eunuch's experience of the celebration of the goodness of God would have been muted by being placed in the outer courts, away from the center of worship, away from the inside ring of people who were some version of pure in everyone's mind. And this outer court section of worshipers full of the lame and the blind and the deaf is the same outer court section that Jesus when he came into the temple, turned over the tables. Do you guys remember that story? 
Jesus comes into the outer court, and there are, this is the court where, where it's supposed to be a welcoming place for Gentiles and lame people and beggars and people who are less deserving. And Jesus flips over the tables because what had happened is they had set up a little bit of an economy inside of there to take advantage of those people. If the poor and the beggars and the Gentiles are in this outer court, we have like an audience of people that we can sell doves and lambs to because those things are required for worship. But we can double the price. So Jesus comes into that outer court and he turns over and he says, do not make this place a a den of robbers. This is the house of my Lord. So the section reserved for the outsiders to participate in the worship celebration was being turned into a marketplace filled with injustice. And Jesus symbolically turns over the tables and he drives out the animals that are being sold and then he heals the lame and the deaf and he makes those who are unclean no longer unclean so that they can be brought into worship. That's Jesus' ministry. And so this eunuch traveling for probably two weeks by chariot, comes into Jerusalem as an outsider, one from the margins, dark-skinned, gender-ambiguous, probably not carrying any animal sacrifice. And it's likely with Jesus out of the way that the temple practices had resumed to normal. So I bet that marketplace was back and up and running because they killed the guy who turned over the tables. And so... The eunuch buys a lamb for sacrifice and he hands it over to the priest and he doesn't even get to enter into the worship service where his purchased lamb was being slaughtered. Because everyone was worshiping, but he was unclean. So this is what the eunuch had just experienced as he leaves the city. Muted worship, unincluded, a reminder that whatever is happening in that building is not for him. And the good news of this story that we read in Acts chapter 8 is what is about to unfold as we look a little bit closer is meant to highlight the reality that the kingdom of God is for this one. The kingdom of God has always been designed for the people who we imagine are on the margins. And I don't know if you have any area of your life right now where you feel like you are on the margins, whether it be racially, doesn't, doesn't look like it here. It's okay. Let's just, let's just name that. Or economically, or sociopolitically, or as we enter into a, a, a season of election, there's going to be some sort of political turmoil and you might feel on the margins in some places in your family. The kingdom of God has always been designed for the people who we imagine are on the margins. This is the eunuch at the furthest edge of the world, an outsider to the center where historically is the place where God's presence dwells, a sexual and gender minority in a cultural empire where male sexual dominance is a primary cultural currency. And here is Philip, one who had been with Jesus, chasing after him on a dusty road leading out of the city. Man, guys, if that doesn't encourage you about what the kingdom is, I... I, don't know how to light a fire inside of you. (laughs) That is a fire-producing story if you let it take residence in your heart. If you need a picture in your mind or a singular story to remind you of the story that you and I are a part of and what the kingdom of God is about, this is one of those stories that you you can pin to the top of your feed. Can you imagine just having this story live at the top of your feed? in these upcoming weeks and months. The kingdom of God has always been designed for the people who we imagine are on the margins. And the way that God brings those marginalized people back into where they are meant to be is that he begins to speak to them. 
Guys, God is speaking to people on the margins all of the time. God is speaking to people. That's how he begins that work. And the way that, he, that God is bringing those people back is he speaks to them, and this brings us to the Scriptures. So friends, the eunuch was not a marginalized person in his own culture. He had to come to church to experience that. He's coming back from Jerusalem where he is a marginalized person, and he's headed back to his home where he is not a marginalized person, but somebody who is held in high esteem and honor. And what is he reading? He's reading a, pers- he's reading a story about a marginalized person. And so this excluded Ethiopian eunuch is reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah about someone who would be cut off from the land that he was living in, who would be excluded for his shame, and would die in shame and humiliation as an act of service for others, which sounds very familiar to the eunuch's own story. Can you see the connection there? So this is what the eunuch reads. And he, because of his affliction, opens not his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth because of the iniquities of my people. He was led to death. So friends, the eunuch is trying to make sense of this scripture. And then he sees, sorry, he's trying to make sense of his own life. And then he sees in the scriptures the life of one who would be excluded and cut off and ultimately die with no descendants to remember him. Just like the eunuch. The eunuch had physically been cut off. The eunuch had no idea or no possibility of leaving any descendants behind him, which was very important in that cultural context. And so there's a sense in which the eunuch had given up his life for something. And friends, I want to just say this about the Scriptures. If you're not reading the Scriptures in the current season, I would encourage you to pick up the Scriptures. God has put his very own self all throughout the scriptures so that God himself can receive our gaze and mirror back to us something about our own story. That is what the eunuch is experiencing in reading the scriptures. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this, but, but I wonder if you've ever had a moment like this where the scriptures have mirrored back something about your life. You guys ever had that happen? I remember one of the most significant moments for me I was on an airplane flying to Tanzania, actually, to visit Lindy and, and the Buckleys. I was visiting Doug, too, but he's not here, so. And I remember I was meditating on some scripture. Um, there's this passage about, about um, the workers de- deserving their wages, and, and the story that Jesus tells is a story about somebody who shows up to work at 8 in the morning and works all day long and gets a certain amount of money, and then the person that shows up at like 4.30 p.m. works for like 30 minutes and gets the same amount of money. Do you guys remember this story that Jesus tells? And I remember reading this on the plane, and I'm just praying a little bit, and I remember thinking to myself like, like how unfair that was. And I remember recognizing that I was feeling pretty frustrated about like how the person at 4.30 gets the same amount of money as the person that showed up at 9 a.m., and then Jesus really just said to me, you're, you're the 430 guy. <laughs> and I just began to weep. I had to go to the bathroom in like the little tiny plain bathroom. And I'm just like, I'm just so tender to the Lord. I'm just weeping in the bathroom. And, and like I think I was in there for 10 minutes just trying to pull it together enough to go back to my seat. Because who wants to be the guy on a plane like next to somebody weeping, right? You know? Do that to us. They reflect back to us. And if we say, Lord, would you speak to me through the scriptures? God can do that. 
And maybe you actually relate to the story that we're reading this morning. Like maybe you feel a bit like an outsider. Maybe, maybe it's not this. Maybe it's the writer of the poetry and Psalms who feels under the thumb of someone else and cries out to God for help. Or maybe it's the story about a, about a man named Jacob who lied and cheated and stole from his own brother because he needed so badly. And that lack of fatherly approval has shaped a good deal of his life. Or maybe it's the story of the multitudes of women who cry out to God because they want a baby. Where are you in the story of the scriptures? Where do you find yourself? God has planted himself in this story, and he is waiting for you and I to find ourselves and to find him. Mirroring back to us all of the pain and the suffering and the laughter and the joy, the whole abundant life that Jesus promises us. So as we come to understand that God himself became a human being and he knows what you are experiencing right now, wherever you are, God knows. He knows what it means to be a single mom or a rejected son or a family facing famine or an economic crisis or rising interest rates where you can't even afford a house. So the entirety of the scriptures are stories and poems and songs and hopes and encounters that people have with the God of all creation who is trying to woo people to himself by crafting a story where you can meet both God and yourself in the story. That's what the scriptures are, friends. And part of what I want to do as we read this story about the Ethiopian eunuch who is who is having a moment by reading the scriptures, is I just want to invite you, could you consider returning to this? I don't know what that looks like for you. If you need some help with that, I'd be happy to help you. We, we as a church can help each other learn how to lean back into this a little bit. And so the eunuch is reading the scriptures from the prophet Isaiah, and he doesn't quite understand what he's reading. And so it says that beginning with the scriptures... Um, that the eunuch is reading, beginning with that particular scripture, uh, Philip preached Jesus to him, which brings us to the third perspective that I want to look at through this passage, which is the temple, the place where the eunuch just tried to visit. One of the major things that happened earlier in the book of Acts is the, the way the kingdom of God is coming is through extending what used to happen only in the temple out into the world. There is something about the presence of God that used to only happen in the temple. And what we read about in the book of Acts is that whole thing that happens in the temple is beginning to spill out into the world in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the outer edges of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, when the believers are gathered together to wait on the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, Luke writes that the Holy Spirit came in power and the presence of God filled the room with a rushing wind, causing those who were gathered to speak the good news of the kingdom in multiple languages so that stuff could get to go out from Jerusalem. The place where the presence of God was said to dwell was in the innermost part of the temple. And the particular place where the presence of God dwelt was in a little room in the temple called the Holy of Holies where only one person entered one time a year. A pretty small dose of presence, isn't it? If it's in a room with a locked door and only one person could go inside that room once a year. And now that presence, which was contained primarily to this one room for hundreds and hundreds of years, was now spilling out in the followers of Jesus. Filling them up with a presence and sending them out into the city streets to proclaim the good news of God into the world. So the eunuch comes from Ethiopia, came to Jerusalem because he wanted to get in on the celebration of the presence of God, and then he was barred from entering into the place of worship because of something to do with the condition of his genitals. Super weird. And God then brought the temple to him. The temple of God, who in this particular instance was a man named Philip, climbed up into the Holy Spirit. Do you guys see that that's happening? What was, no long, what, was, what was not offered 
to, to, to the eunuch in the temple, God said, I will bring the temple to you and I will climb up in your chariot and I will bring the presence to where you are. So that the eunuch could make sense of his life by looking at his own life, the life. People would come to the temple and they would deal with priests who would represent them to God. And now God has poured out his spirit into those who have joined themselves to Christ and now represent God to the world, particularly the ones who are on the margins. So this is foreshadowed in the scene where Jesus cleanses the temple to make room for the wounded. It's baked into the well-remembered story about a shepherd who leaves behind the 99 to go after the one. It's turned into a parable through a story about a man who throws a feast and invites all of his friends and the people of influence to the feast. And everyone makes an excuse as to why they cannot come. And so the man tells his servant to go out into the streets and bring in the lame and the wounded in the poor, over and over and over and over again, we see Jesus saying, I want more. I want more people to experience my presence. It's highlighted by Matthew who said that when Jesus died, the huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple from the room surrounding it, that heavy curtain was ripped wide open from top to bottom. The entire story of the kingdom of God, friends, is about the presence of God being multiplied and extended outward. So the presence of God has spilled out of the temple and you and I are the temple of God. You are the presence of God to the world. You are God's presence. Wherever you are, you are God's presence. You are the temple of God to the people around you. Which means that what God is doing in you and in your story is a small version of what God is doing in the entire world. So can you think a little bit about one bit of transformation that's happened in your life in the past 10 years? Here's what I know to be true, that I think that God is, is really trying to underscore for us. The expansion of the kingdom of God is really slow but it always is about his presence. And so if you can hang on to the fact that God is doing something in you, in your little story, that is meant to help you explore the fact that God is doing some version of what he's doing in you in the entire world. So I want to close with a bit of an exploration of what happens next in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. Are you guys still with me? Okay. I'm a bit out of practice, so I'm probably going long, but you know what? It's okay. I want to introduce you to one more person who actually has set this whole string of events in motion. The eunuch is traveling out of Jerusalem on a desert road. They've just been uh, rejected in the temple and reminded of their insufficiency. They're reading about another one who was rejected from the scriptures. And who notices the eunuch? Who notices the eunuch? Who's the first one to notice the eunuch? Do you, do you remember in the reading? It's okay if you don't. We think that it's Philip, but, but who sees the eunuch first? It's the Spirit. Before Philip sees the chariot, God sees the chariot. Before Philip sees the eunuch, God sees the eunuch. So Luke writes that a messenger from God comes and speaks to Philip and says to Philip, go down that dusty road. And then as Philip is on the road, he notices a chariot. And in verse 29, it says, the spirit said to Philip, go up and join that chariot. And so Philip ran he ran. I could preach a whole sermon on that. He ran in order to catch the chariot. And as he comes up next to the chariot, he hears the eunuch reading out loud from the prophet Isaiah. And the story unfolds from there. And they eventually come to a spring. And the eunuch sees water. And he says, is there anything that would prevent me right now from being baptized? And Philip says, I can't think of a thing. And so they both climb into the water Philip says, come on in. 
And Philip baptizes the eunuch. And we don't really get the rest of the story, but here's how I imagine it unfolding. I imagine that as the eunuch got back into the chariot and continued on the road back to Ethiopia, soaking wet from his first baptism, that he would have kept reading the scroll from Isaiah and just a few chapters later would have read this. Okay? Are you with me? A couple chapters after that. So Philip is, or the, the Ethiopian eunuch has a two-week journey with a scroll. Do you think he would have kept reading? Yes. And he would have come to this. This is the prophet Isaiah. For my salvation is about to come, and my faithfulness is about to be revealed. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial to them. I will make them special. I will give to them a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, I will make them joyful in the house of prayer. I will accept their offerings, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all of the people. For all of the people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And I don't know where you are in your life right now. Sorry. (laughs) Just love the scriptures. I don't know where you are in your life right now, but if you could just imagine that there is some version of the eunuch's story that is unfolding in your own story, man, I think that Jesus would do something for you. And so as we prepare for Eucharist, as we prepare to take in a celebration of the temple of God, I want to invite uh, to, to come on up. Refresh me. Is it Ben, that's right. Ben's going to lead us in Eucharist this morning. I want to invite you to open up your hands, prepare your heart for what God might want to reflect back to you in this time, and then we'll go into a time of ministry after we share in a beautiful meal together that was made possible by the presence of God. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Joy. How about now? There we go. Again, I'll repeat that. I just want to allow everyone a moment to marinate and enjoy Joy. Thank you, Joy. And do so as we turn towards the Eucharist, Lord's Supper. We share together in this meal each week, participating in the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. I would invite the worship team as well as our prayer ministry team to come up as well. As the Spirit moves you. We are here because Jesus extends to us an invitation. Strangers and friends, believers and doubters, the certain and the curious, It's always a mixed company that Jesus gathers, amen for that, and invites to his table where in the bread and the cup he meets us, and through him we who are different are joined together as one body. I invite you all to come not because you understand, but because you are understood Come not because of how you feel, but because God has food for you. Come not because you feel deserving, but because Jesus invites you and welcomes you just as you are. Scripture invites us to examine ourselves before coming to the table. We become aware of our faults so that we can receive grace in our time of need. We can confess so that we can partner with God for our healing. And we confess together
through the confession song. Friends, I encourage you now to hear these words of grace from Scripture. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As we share in this story, place yourselves at Jesus' table. Imagine Jesus hosting you this morning. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for so many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. Send now your spirit among us. Come with your presence in this bread and in this cup that as we come forward and present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, we may taste and see your goodness, be united in your love, and become one body, your hands and feet in this world. As you come forward, we would also invite you to receive prayer from our prayer team for anything. We also believe that sometimes God speaks to us for someone else. So please let me know if you feel like you have a word from the Lord to share with us now as people come forward. <laughs> 